Looking for a job isn't easy. It used to be that you could apply at a big name tech company and build a great career for yourself. But times have changed. Many of these companies have gone full woke. And if you aren't the right gender, ethnicity, you don't use pronouns, or if you're not an activist for the preferred cause, then good luck. Why would you risk your career on that? At Red Balloon, we're connecting good employees with top quality companies that value you for your skills and your work ethic, not your social activism score. Employers who post jobs on Red Balloon are focused on creating an enjoyable and productive work culture, free from divisive woke mandates. So if you want to find a serious career path without the nonsense, come to Red Balloon and post your resume today. Because you shouldn't have to choose between your job and your values. That's redballoon.work, where you can find your future. Hey y'all, welcome to Cross Politics on the Five Life Feast Network. Pastor Toby Chuck Knox, um, the water boy. Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy. The most quoted source by the founding fathers. Oh, hey. Yeah. Where'd you, where'd you get that from? Over my, my man, my man who's coming on. Oh, told me. Oh, about it more than John Locke. Even more than John Locke. Yeah, which Good is I, I don't know why we compare Deuteronomy to John Locke, but it's not even no, close. <laughs> <laughs> not even close. Hey, Dine Payments is a Christian-owned processing payment business. Every business needs a payment process system, so please go to DimePayments.com/flf. And sign your business up. Working with them supports us. They won't cancel you like Stripe canceled President Trump. They won't cancel you like MailChimp canceled the Babylon Bee. Check them out. At least have a phone call. Tell them that CrossPolitik sent you. Go to DimePayments.com slash FLF. We're very grateful to have with us on the show today, uh, Daniel Dresback, professor of justice, law, and criminology at American University. He earned a DPhil from Oxford University, where he studied as a Rhodes Scholar and a JD from the University of Virginia. He's authored and edited 10 books and numerous articles in scholarly journals and is the author of the book, The Bible in the Political Culture of the American Founding. Uh, Daniel, thanks for joining us on Cross Politic. Thanks for having me. I've been looking forward to this. Well, good. you're so kind. I, 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 I hope you still feel that way after we're done. <laughs> I do too. <laughs> so, so just, maybe just start off with, I think it would be helpful for us. I mean, I, I think I'd just like to hear like um, how, what, how was, how Christian, just how Christian was the founding of America? Well, I think that's a difficult question to answer because there are some key terms here that we would need to define. Uh, what do we mean exactly by Christian? What does a Christian founding look like? Uh, I, I think perhaps a, a, an entree into this question is to talk a bit about the culture. It definitely was a Christian culture. And, and even more than that, it was a Protestant culture. At the time of independence, probably 98% or more of all Americans of European descent would have identified with some part of the Protestant tradition. Mm. And, and the Bible was, was a, a key culture as well. Uh, for example, it, it was an indispensable part, uh, especially the King James translation of the Bible, was vital to literacy education. And Americans were a highly literate people, as were other Protestant cultures around the world. And so many Americans, uh, both 
uh, in the elites as well as ordinary people would have learned to read with a copy of the Bible in front of them. And the Bible was baked into the educational system. It was wow. part of arts and letters. It was part of education from the lowest grades to, to the highest uh, grades at the university level. So this was a Bible reading people and a Bible reading culture. Now that doesn't answer the question to what degree they, they were themselves uh, faithfully committed to Christianity, but we know the culture was by and large a profoundly Christian culture. You know, we, we talked to somebody, um, that's really helpful. We talked to somebody just recently, actually, we were asking a similar question and, and he was sort of pushing back on the idea a little bit that it, that the founding was as Christian as we might often think. And one of the, the points that he brought up was he said he, he doesn't, he didn't think that the 18th century America was a church going people. Do you, do you think that's true? There was some scholarship that came out, oh, 40, 50 years ago that raised doubts about the degree of church attendance uh, in the late colonial period. I think much of that scholarship has been challenged, maybe even debunked at this point. Okay. Again, I think you have to look at this by region by region. There are variations between sort of uh, old Congregationalist New England and more Anglican uh, South. Uh, so you would have seen variations. It's also differences from coastal areas to more uh, sort of frontier areas. Um, and there, there are a lot of factors that go into uh, sort of the statistics regarding church attendance. But I'm fairly comfortable in saying that uh, this was a fairly... Uh, uh, committed uh, community uh, people in terms of uh, of things like uh, regular church attendance. So, Daniel, if the Bible was so influential in the culture of our founders and in the kind of uh, is is a, a book that everyone read in a, in a large way, uh, how come our founders couldn't deal with the problem of slavery from jump? Well, this is, uh, of course, an age-old question. It's been around long before there was a, uh, a British settlements in the New World, and, and it, it continued uh, well beyond the American founding era. Now, having said that, uh, I don't think it's fair to say that the founders dismissed issues of slavery. Uh, this was a topic that uh, comes up there. It's discussed uh, uh, undercurrent. I would suggest to you that the Bible... Uh, plays a somewhat different role in discussions over slavery in the founding era than it's going to look in the next century. Uh, the Bible is going to be an indispensable part of, of conversations and debates uh, in, in the lead up to the Civil War. But the Bible, nonetheless, it is part of the conversation in the American founding. And I think what you're going to find is that um, there was a movement away uh, from slavery at the founding, now that's going to be sort of shaken up a bit uh, by the uh, uh, by the introduction of the cotton gin and, and other things like that. Uh, but by the way, I would say that um, you're not going to find many in the founding generation who make an argument that slavery is a positive good. Now you're going to see that argument a little bit later in American history, but by and large, the founders, including those that were slaveholders like a George Mason, for example, or a Thomas Jefferson, uh, they recognize that there's something profoundly corrosive about the institution of slavery. 
Now, they don't quite have the imagination at this point to figure out how they're going to work their way out of this institution, but they're not viewing slavery as a positive good in the way that it would sometimes be described in the next century. Uh, go, go ahead, Pat. I, I just want to ask, well, I, you know, I think it'd be helpful. I think in, in your book, uh, you, you kind of just give some statistics um, on just how um, you know how frequently the Bible is alluded to or cited um, in the in the writings of of the founding fathers. Can you can you just run through some of those um, some of that data in terms? I mean, a lot of, you know in terms of influences. You mentioned John Locke at the beginning of the show. It, you know, a lot of times people say like, yeah, that's that's the main guy or uh, or whoever else. Um, you know, can you run through those? Yes, I've been reading uh, the literature on uh, religion and politics in the American founding now for 30 years. And and I got to tell you, I could go down to my local library and find a whole shelf of books on how John Locke founded America or how uh, Baron de Montesquieu founded America. And yet there's almost no literature on the topic of the Bible's influence on the American founding. Mm. Uh, there was a rather significant study done, oh, uh, almost 30 years or, or maybe 35 years ago by a political scientist named Donald Lutz. And he looks uh, comprehensively at the political literature of the American founding. And what he found is that one third, one third of all the citations in the political discourse, the political literature of the American founding was to the Bible. Mm -hmm. And the book of Deuteronomy alone was the most cited book, followed by Montesquieu's The Spirit of the Laws. And and he also reports that that Deuteronomy is cited uh, about twice as often as all of Locke's writings put together. Mm-hmm. It is cited much more frequently than the English jurist William Blackstone. Uh, the Apostle Paul is cited more frequently than Locke, for example. <laughs> so the Bible is very much a part of the political discourse, yeah. never mind uh, other discussions about culture and society and and religion in the political discourse it is by far the most uh cited uh work in this literature and and it's being cited for purposes of they're looking to the bible for models and uh, and insights on things like human nature and civic virtue and political authority uh they see the bible as as a a, a vital source to inform their conversations at this moment when they're trying to establish a new political society. Wow. Wow. So, so um, how did their understanding of the, of the Bible and as they're framing the constitution, how did they, did they write in some sort of way to take into account original sin and how original sin operated in, in mankind and, and how did they do that in law or in the constitution particularly? Yeah. So uh, the conventional wisdom that you're going to pick up from the secular academy is that the Constitution is a perfectly secular document. Yep. You even uh, hear the argument that it's a godless constitution, right? Yeah, right? There's a popular book that came out 30 years ago called The Godless Constitution. Uh, I think that's uh, very, very misleading. Uh I would argue that the Bible plays a vital role in the political conversations of of the founding. Uh, They're a part of the conversations of what a a constitutional tradition should look like. And and in particular is this biblical anthropology, Hmm. uh, this this idea that man is a fallen creature. This is Genesis chapter three. Original sin. And, And this accounts for that for that obsession of the founders 
for checks and balances, separation of powers. Uh, they not only understood Genesis chapter 3, but they understood and on occasion quoted Jeremiah 17 uh, that talks about how very much a part of the conversation, and it's going to inform the document that comes out of Philadelphia in the summer of, of 1787. But I wouldn't stop there. It's going to inform a lot of other aspects and features of our constitutional traditions. Some perhaps rather trivial, but others I think are rather profound. Uh, take, for example, uh, the uh, Article 1, Section 8, there, that gives Congress the power to regulate, uh, to fix the standards of weights and measures. Mm. Yeah. The English jurists had long recognized that this is an idea grounded in the laws of God or the requirement that there be a testimony of two witnesses mm -hmm. before there's an impeachment. Yeah. That, too, comes straight out of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 17.6, yeah. or, or here's a wonderful example. The Fifth Amendment includes a prohibition on double jeopardy or trying someone twice yeah. for the same offense. The common law had long recognized that this is an idea that had deep roots in the Western tradition. St. Jerome, writing in the late fourth century in his commentary on Nahum, said that this is a principle found in Nahum chapter one, and it is woven into the canon law and later civil law. English customary law, it comes across the Atlantic, becomes part of the colonial law before it's enshrined in the Fifth Amendment. And we could go through example after example like this, showing evidence of a biblical influence on not only the American constitutional tradition in a larger sense, but very specific features of the American Constitution. Is your book on Amazon right now? Can I just go and get it? If it's, <laughs> if it, if it's you, in there, you I, haven't, I it haven't gotten the book uh, yet. Shame I, on I, you. I know. If, shame for real, on shame you. on me. So I, I, <laughs> if you drop the founding fathers into the current, I think America has gone secular, but if you drop them right now into the current America that we have, after they got done renting their clothes, what would if they... You, what if you dropped them right into a library, you know, drag queen story, story hour? hour. <laughs> I, I want them to not die of a heart attack. Oh, okay. uh, <laughs> sorry, sorry. But if you dropped them into this current America, where would they begin to start changing or getting things back on track? Well, let's make this observation. Uh, the founding generation uh, was a well-read generation, and, mm. and the and the the gentlemen who showed up in Philadelphia for the Constitutional Convention, many of them had had worked very hard in preparation, and they read widely. Uh, and and I don't want to leave the impression that the Bible is the only source of influence. They are, in fact, as we've implied already, they're reading from from the liberal tradition, the Enlightenment tradition. They're reading Locke. They're reading Montesquieu. They're also reading deeply from the English common law and uh, constitutional yeah. tradition. Sir William Blackstone, for example, or or Sir Edward Cook. Uh, they're also drawing on um, very long Republican traditions, both ancient and modern. They had studied the Roman Republic, and they studied the more uh, modern Republicans like Machiavelli. So they were a well-read people. Uh, they also, by the way, read about what they called and considered the Hebrew Republic. Mm. Uh, they're reading about that time in the history of Israel from the Exodus to the coronation of Saul as king. They see in that a model of 
and they think that's worthy of their study. So uh, to answer your question, I think the first thing that they would call us to do is to is to do our homework, mm-hmm. read about uh, these ancient and modern principles of how do you order a political society? Mm. How do you how do you understand a human nature? These kinds of things. I I I think we've we've sort of lost our moorings. We've lost uh, any sense of a, an anchor to sort of uh, first principles. And so I think that would be the first thing they they would call us to do is to is to read deep deep about the very foundations of what makes a republic work or what makes a republic fail. They had seen many examples of failed republics, and they wanted to avoid that very outcome in their own experiment. So you have a book list? Well, again, I think we have to start with the Bible. Mm. That is that is go. the reading list that the founding fathers are, are, are starting with. But again, uh, they're reading far beyond uh, that. And again, like a Locke or a Montesquieu, they're very much a part of the reading list uh, of the founders. Uh, but let's keep in mind, someone like a Locke is constantly engaging with biblical ideas and biblical texts. Yeah, right. So I think it would be a mistake to to even think of some of these more liberal or enlightenment thinkers as somehow separated mm. from a biblical culture or a biblical discourse. How, Daniel, how how do you get to, I mean, I, I, I couldn't agree more with just, you know, what you've already just begun to sketch in terms of, you know, um, reading the Bible and seeing these models, uh, both for you know understanding human nature, understanding how society works, understanding um, the, the 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 wisdom and the principles that that God established in Israel that then is carried you know through the, the text. I mean, I, I see that all, but so I mean, I think I think what you're talking about is like I think for a lot of American Christians. A lot of American, you know, probably especially evangelical and Protestant Christians who, you know, would look back to the founding of America as as, as our forefathers in the faith as well, um, would look, would hear what you're saying like like you've got you know three eyes on your head like you know like like you're talking about the Bible as a political document. You're talking about the Bible as something, you know, the, no, the, the Bible is for church on Sunday. The Bible is for, <laughs> right. you know, how to get saved and go to heaven when you die. The Bible is for maybe knowing about how to, you know, be nice to your wife or, you know, have decent kids or, you know. Uh, but it's not for politics. But it's not for <laughs> politics, <laughs> Daniel. Yeah. I mean, what, 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 what do you, what would you say? What would the founding fathers say to us on that count? I, I think the founding generation would have would reject that notion that this is a Sunday morning only kind of book. Uh, this is a book that speaks to, touches every aspect of life, every aspect of the human experience. And, and let me give you an example of a text that goes to the very heart of the moment for the Americans in 1776 or thereabouts, and that is Romans chapter 13, verses 1 through 7. Yeah. In submission to those in authority over you. That is a challenging text for a people contemplating turning away from King George III. And right. so they grapple with this text. And and uh they 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 often read it in the in the we must obey God rather than man. And they're trying to come to terms with how do you reconcile uh, this commandment of of Paul. 
uh, that we read in Romans 13, one of the most cited biblical texts in the founding, with these other biblical examples. Uh, think of Daniel. Uh, yep. And, and, and we can go through a very long list. And so this is at the very heart of the conversation that Americans are having. Can we justify resistance to a tyrant? And they draw on an older tradition. They draw on a tradition that comes out of the Reformation, where you see um, Catholic princes uh, seeking to sort of destroy or annihilate Protestant subjects. Think, for example, the St. Bartholomew Day Massacre yeah. uh, uh, of, of, of the 1500s. And they work through that theology, this idea that God has established and ordained civil magistrates to do the public good. But when a magistrate and forfeits his office, forfeits his civil magistrate, and therefore the people are no longer required to obey. In fact, they have a duty to resist resist a tyrant. Mm. And so Americans are working through this profound theology at this political moment to serve the political needs of that moment when they are faced with what they believe to be the tyranny of crown and parliament in England. Daniel, Daniel, why is our nation's history in such debate right now? Why is there a fight over like the, the, influence of the bible on our christian on our founding of our country i mean australia is not fighting over their nation's founding um they're debating that they're a bunch of rebels from great britain that came down you know uh why why is there such a debate in in a fight over our country's kind of christian influence and founding well, I think we, we see the politicization of virtually all aspect of our culture today, do we not? And I think oftentimes uh, history has, is not so much about trying to understand the past, but it's really become how to recontrol the future. Huh. And in a highly mm. politicized uh, environment, I think that's that's what we're seeing, right? Uh, we're even debating the question about is there significance in 1776, uh, for example. Uh, and again, I don't see this as a debate about the past. I don't see it about as an honest conversation about history. It's a bit about really can we control the future yeah, uh, right. and, and how can we manipulate our reading and interpretation of the past to control the future. That's the way I see it. Perhaps I'm a little cynical in that regard. Yeah, I think you're right I, I, on that. I, I, think, I think he's right. Uh, Dana, um, have you been following much of this whole like Christian nationalism um, uh, discussion debate. I mean, there's sort of it's a it's wide ranging. I mean, they're you know um, uh, NBC and you know CNN kind of mainstream media sort of painted you know anybody to the right of I don't know Kennedy yeah, <laughs> as, really. a, as a really. Christian nationalist. Um, and you know, there's some books out and some conversations. Um, uh, what, what do you make of that that discussion? Well, I, I think the first place you have to start in this conversation is define our terms. What do we mean by by Christian nationalism or Christian nationalist? Uh, my sense is, is that uh, th- there's a, a different different definition for virtually everyone who uses the term. <laughs> yeah. So I think we have to sort of, we have to understand what in fact we're talking about. Uh, I can think of senses in which the term is used that I just don't think line up with history. There are other senses in which the term is used, which I think line up perfectly with history. I mentioned earlier simply the demographics 
uh, at the in the American founding era, more than 98 percent of all Americans identified with Protestantism. Uh, more than 99 percent would have identified with Christianity. Now, that is not to say that they're all committed in their faith. It's talking about sort of their cultural affiliation. So in simply the demographic terms and how that begins to play out in the culture, clearly there's a strong uh, Christian uh, component to the nation and to the culture at large. But in other senses, I think it's a, a term that uh, in which I think um, the, the weight is is is, is the term can bear, right? Is that to say that this is a nation that is can only be a home for Christians? I, I think that's a, a more challenging question. And I think the Constitution does offer some insights into how we might uh, answer those kinds of questions. But it's really hard to have this conversation without, you know, doing the foundational work of being very clear about what it is we're talking about. And, and, and I'm sad to say that I, I think a lot of people who engage in this debate uh, are not terribly forthcoming in telling us what they mean by this kind of terminology. Mm. Do you, um, I don't know if you followed uh, uh, Yoram Hazani, uh, a Jewish uh, conservative scholar, um, as as. Uh, written a book on conservatism and also on nationalism, the virtue of nationalism. And and he's done a, quite a bit of work arguing that kind of the federalism and the federalists of the of the, of the founding um, decades were self-consciously, intentionally uh, um, nationalists of, of, of a sort. Um, I, I, have you followed any of that or what's your, you know, can you comment on that at all? Well, certainly uh, coming out of the, the Old Testament, there is a, a, a strong component uh, of allegiance to the family, uh, to, to the extended family, and, and, and the way this may extend out into what we might think of as, and, as nations, those kinds of things. Uh, let me just say, you know, in, in uh, the book of Deuteronomy is a rich, rich text in thinking about some of these kinds of things, uh, playing out ideas is a federalism or separation of powers uh the um and they see a number of interesting models in those chapters take for example the separation of powers between prophet priest and king right. yeah. a kind of a model for separation of powers separation between the local community and a more uh so uh the founding generation saw a lot of of uh, of models worthy of study, if not emulation, uh, coming out of the Jewish experience, uh, especially that that's recorded in the book of Deuteronomy. And 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 I think uh, this is, uh, is is where our conversation will probably carry us back uh, to to these kinds of texts. Wow, wow. that's really helpful, Daniel. Uh, that's. That's fantastic! I can't wait to finish the book. Don't you have one more ad to read? Oh, I do have one more ad to read. Yeah. Sorry, I was just, I was just, I was. You just got wrapped up I, in the combo. I was getting ready to get my offering to. Yeah. to, 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 to <laughs> we'll do that last, Pastor Daniel. Um, <laughs> are you subscribed yet to our Cross Politic email list? If you're not, you really should be. Being subscribed to our email list means you won't miss any updates about Cross Politic or the Fight Laugh Feast Network. You hear about what's on the schedule for the week, uh, guests we might be having on the show, uh, what we're. Recording, live events. Of course, you'll have conference updates, rowdy Christian merch where you can get your, your Macca hats. Make America Christian again. <laughs> and um, of course, um, updates from other shows within the Fight Laugh Feast network. And you'll hear from sponsors of the show as they seek to take dominion 
for God's kingdom in the business world. To subscribe, just simply enter your email address at the bottom of the page at fightlaughfeast.com. Again, go to fightlaughfeast.com, scroll to the bottom of the page, enter your email address so you don't miss anything from here at CrossPolitik. Hey, Daniel, where can people keep up with the articles that you write, buy your book, things like that? Well, I'm not a big social media person, but I am on Twitter okay. at uh, at uh, the letter E, the number three, B-A-C-H, D-3-B-A-C-H. And uh, I, I, I do a lot of uh, tweeting about issues that we've been talking about, and uh, I will typically mention where I'll be speaking or articles and, and stuff that I have coming out there. Awesome. I, I just followed you. I followed you. I just yeah, followed you. I'm about to go do it, too. Thank you, Daniel, for coming across politics. Yeah, I really appreciate, appreciate you, sir. Yeah. If you're single, Thanks get married. Me. If you're married, have you some kids. And if you have kids, go baptize them. Until next time, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Go fight, laugh, and feast. This is Cross Politic. I hope my son is gay. And I hope that Jesus forgives him just like he does the rest of us. <laughs> Doug Wilson, Moscow minister and columnist with the Idahonian Daily News. The question that confronts us is what does it mean in a disobedient culture to be prophetic? There will be a place for same-sex couples? Uh, no, no marriage. Even though it's the law of the land in the United States? Uh, just like Roe used to be. We want to turn the world upside down. And you don't turn the world upside down by being nice. I believe that we are in, in this polytheistic, pluralistic moment, and the desperate need of the hour is for our Christian leadership to say, Jesus is Lord and there is no other. Fear no man. Hi, I'm Robert Borton, CEO of Classical Conversations, the world's largest classical Christian homeschooling community. I'm launching a new podcast, Refining Rhetoric. If you like cross-politics or just listen to hear what crazy stuff they're saying today, you will enjoy Refining Rhetoric. You can find us on your favorite podcast platform. I practice the 15 tools of learning by interviewing great guests, looking at current events, and talking about cryptocurrency.